Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 4. One of the things that I am praying for us as the Trails Church is that as we make our way through the book of Exodus, our view of God might grow. That chapter by chapter, our eyes would be adjusted to the glory and goodness of God revealed in His Word. I want that for each one of us. I want that for my family. I want that for me. So I'm asking the Lord to create in us an expectant hunger to know Him in His Word, that our faith in Christ would grow as we find Jesus more believable and beautiful than ever before. Who's with me? In the children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis illustrates that kind of idea in the book Prince Caspian. There's a scene. Any, any Prince Caspian fans in here? All right. Much stronger support than the nine. These are the readers. All right, so Caspian, um, there's a scene in which Lucy, who is the youngest daughter of Eve, is talking to Aslan, who is the Lion King of Narnia. Who represents Christ. And it had been some time since Lucy had seen Aslan when they meet one another and greet. And this is the conversation. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Haven't you known that to be true with the Lord Jesus Christ? The seasons we grow most spiritually are graced with a greater view of who God is. The remarkable thing is that the years don't inflate God's size like the house that we grew up in. As the years progress, He gets bigger and bigger in the way that we see Him and experience Him. Every year we grow, we find Him bigger. What a privilege it is for us to walk alongside Moses and see his faith growing in these opening chapters of Exodus. Moses wasn't immediately this courageous prophet wielding the staff of God, leading the children of Israel down the Red Sea Road. Last week, he was a reluctant shepherd arguing barefoot with God in the desert. But God has been patient with Moses revealing his name, giving the promise of his presence, comforting him with signs for the task that God had called him to. And now the time has come for him to begin that work. With every step, God will provide him to be totally sufficient for the task. Moses' view of God will continue to grow. Are you finding God bigger and bigger as time passes. The series of brief scenes found in Exodus chapter 4 verses 18 through 31 play a significant role in the story of Moses' life as well as the unfolding story of redemption. This passage documents specific events surrounding Moses' journey as he returns to that shadowed land of the pyramids in order to rescue his people from slavery. 
along the way, we witnessed the, the Lord working in and through Moses' life as he's being prepared to lead God's chosen people. So I've entitled the sermon, Exodus in Reverse, and let me explain why. The story of Exodus begins in Egypt, and then there's a section talking and recording God's covenant with his people, and then it ends at Sinai, where God is worshipped in the midst of his people. Well, here in our text, uh, things start at Sinai, the place where they'll end up, and then there's this mention of God's covenant with his people, and then he ends up being worshipped by those people way back in Egypt. And so, our text today tells the story backward. It's Exodus in reverse. What I want us to do is look at how these scenes grow Moses' view of God And I pray by God's grace, ours as well, that we would have a growing vision of who God is. And so it seemed like it would be appropriate to have God-centered points for us to meditate on this morning. So here they are. One, he is the God who redeems. Verses 18 through 23. Second, he is the God of covenant. Verses 24 through 26. And finally, he is the God who is worthy of of worship, verses 27 through 31. So would you please stand with me once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. Exodus four eighteen to 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do put before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? In verses 18 through 23, 
we behold the God of redemption. The scene opens as Moses leaves the fiery presence of God, returning to Midian to ask his father-in-law for his blessing to go on this venture. Now the ask is that he would allow him not only to go, but he's asking Jethro to take his own daughter and his grandkids to his homeland of Egypt. The reason he gives is to see if his brothers were alive. Now that is a Hebrew idiom, and uh, the way we would translate that today is, I want to see how they're getting on. I want to see how things are going with them. We're not sure why Moses doesn't tell the whole truth. It could be that he doesn't yet believe it all. He doesn't know how things are going to unfold, or he simply doesn't want to over-communicate and raise too many red flags in the mind of his father-in-law. As my buddy Kevin DeYoung pointed out, talking to Pharaoh is one thing, talking to your father-in-law is another. (laughs) So while he's in Midian, the Lord reminds Moses he's just on a layover there. That's not his final destination. He's got to move on to Egypt. God assures Moses that these men who were seeking his life, they'd all died. And it was now safe for him to return. Now let's pause there. Because in verse 19, we hear the refrain of another passage in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus' father Joseph, earthly father, and his mom Mary, take Jesus to Egypt when Herod was hunting them. In verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 2 say, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Long before the birth of Christ, God speaks the same words. So, with the blessing of his family, he sets out with his wife, with his sons. They've had more sons now. They're going on a donkey, but there's a special inclusion of this piece of wood. Remember we looked at this last week? What's it called here? The staff of God. This is no longer just Moses' own tool. This is empowered by God himself. It's the sign of God's power and presence among his people. So like the table of contents that we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 3, 18 through 20... Uh, That listed out what we would read. Here in verses 21 through 23, I'm calling this a breadcrumb trail of what lies ahead. So Moses, as an author, isn't worried about spoiling the story for us. Rather, he wants to prepare us to look for certain signs um, as we're traveling through these pages. I do the same thing each week when I announce the points of the sermon. I learned that from Charles Spurgeon. Right or wrong, that's what I do. And so Moses is doing a very similar thing here. He's outlining things that we will see coming along the way. This little trail of breadcrumbs. The first thing is this. Moses will perform miracles. Last week we saw Moses commissioned to go and perform these specific signs. Wonders, they were called, that uh, that God had empowered him to do. Before our text is even over today. He will do those first three signs we looked at. He'll perform those for the people of Israel, for the elders. We'll get to the conclusion of that uh, later. But there are more signs as we go through Exodus to be on the lookout for. The second thing, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now that's a new piece of information. We don't know that yet until we've come upon it here in verse 21. 
in Exodus 3.10, we are told that the people will listen to Moses. Here, we are told Pharaoh will not. Before Moses ever returns to Egypt, before he stands toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, before any of the plagues are wrought, God tells Moses that in the end, Pharaoh will not let his people go. He even discloses the reason why. God himself will harden the heart of Pharaoh. Now, we're going to come to this again and again as we move through uh, the coming chapters and the story progresses. But for today, let me just say this is an important doctrine for us to wrestle with and to understand and to marvel at. There are 22 references in Exodus to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, 11 of them tell us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And 11 tell us that it was God doing that work. On one hand, we see that Pharaoh made a real willful decision to harden his heart against God. And on the other hand, we see God's sovereign decision to harden Pharaoh's heart. So we're going to double click on that uh, in a a few weeks. For now, just keep that thought in your pocket as we move forward. Third, Israel is God's firstborn son. There's two pieces of information we already knew. Two pieces of new information. God will harden his heart was new, and this is also new. Verse 23, Israel is my firstborn son. That's the first time in the Bible that we see God's people referred to as the sons and daughters of God. This describes this filial, familial, covenantal relationship that God has made with with them, and by extension, with us through Christ. In Genesis, God is set forth as the shepherd of his people and the guide and protector, but here he is father. And I don't think it's any accident that just after he announces his divine name, Yahweh expresses his divine relationship with his people. It's what we hear in in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where the prophet echoes, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What God had called them to do was to worship and serve him, not to serve at the crown and pleasure of Pharaoh. So that's the third thing. Israel is God's firstborn son. Fourth, if Pharaoh doesn't comply, it will mean the death of of his firstborn son. Or to say it differently, it will be a son for a son. Here, Moses predicts the final plague of the Passover, this deadly blow that it uh, is what it's going to take ultimately to get Pharaoh to release this grip that he has on the children of God, the death of the firstborn son. We also will come to this again and again as we proceed through uh, the the next few chapters. For now, let's remember why this is the case. Egypt has enslaved God's firstborn son, Israel, for 400 years. Remember back in chapter 2? They're even putting them to death at certain points, killing their firstborn sons. But God doesn't miss a thing. He sees. He hears. He remembers. He knows. And the anger of the Lord who is a good father, is kindled against Pharaoh and Egypt, and it's about to burst into flame in the coming chapters. 
as God is glorified through saving his people and through judging his enemies. So those are the four pieces of information in 21 through 23, this breadcrumb trail that will mark our path as we move forward. What's it doing? It's telling us the story of the God who redeems. All right, so the title that I'd like to frame, verses 24 through 26, is God as the God of covenant. The kind of covenant in view here is a promise made by God. Specifically, he has promised to Israel to be their God. They would be his people. That's where we're headed. But you need some explanation. Because some of you were already squirming during the passage being read earlier. I saw it. Um, Before the benediction last week, I announced that this Sunday's sermon covered one of the most strange texts in the whole of the Old Testament. Remember that? Who was here and heard that? This is actually a surprise attendance check. Who was here last week? Um, Well, this is it. This is that strange passage. As a matter of fact, it wasn't too long after I announced that we would be preaching through Exodus. I started getting text messages like, can't wait till you get to chapter 4. Or even this last week, Boz, what are you going to say next Sunday? Well, I have no idea. Um, I guess we're about to see together what I will do with this text. And I am grateful for those hecklers, I mean friends. Um, This is the passage they had in mind. And these verses can be challenging to understand. Um, The challenge lies in the way that pronouns are used. Uh, The name Moses is not even found in these verses, just the word his again and again. And so does his mean Moses, or does his mean Gershom? That's the main main question. So before we work through this section, I want to make a couple of things really clear. First, God has not given us his word to confuse us, but to communicate with us and to commune with us in his word. And so anytime we come to a challenging passage, the problem is us, it's not God. So that being said, the second thing is, uh, regardless of what's happening with these pronouns uh, and the strange summary, which we'll get to, uh, the point remains the same. God is getting Moses' attention, calling him to obedience to the covenant and to integrity as the one who would soon deliver the people of God. It would not be enough for God to have integrity just in public, but also in private. So one of my mentors, Alistair Begg, says, often uh, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so I pray the main thing will become the plain thing as we discuss this passage. So Moses Here's what's happening. Moses is returning to Egypt with his family, and along the way, the Lord just stops him dead in his tracks. Uh, Almost literally, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, that doesn't mean the emphasis is he's going to kill him. It's saying he's coming really close. This is a way of saying uh, he better watch it. Now, there's two stories from the book of Genesis that I want turning over in our thoughts 
as we arrive here. The first is a story of Moses' great-grandfather, Abraham, recorded in Genesis 22, where God tests his faith, asking him to sacrifice his firstborn son, remember that language, Isaac, upon the altar of sacrifice. That's the first story. The second is in Genesis 32, where Moses' other great-grandfather, Jacob, wrestled an angel almost to the point of death, holding on for a blessing from the Lord. In each of those accounts, the promised seed of the woman in the story of Scripture has a near-death experience as they ultimately submitted their lives to the Lordship of God. Do you remember those two stories? Well, now it's Moses' turn. That's what's happening here in this passage He's wrestling with God over a matter of obedience. Now, we don't know specifically what happens to him. We can gather that it's something so serious that Moses is knocking on death's door and he's too paralyzed to do anything about it. But just then, something very interesting happens. Uh, this is, this is that kind of takes us by storm. We, we think we're going one way, all of a sudden, Zipporah enters the scene, she steps onto the stage and circumcises their firstborn son, Gershom, and God leaves Moses alone. That is a wild story. Maybe not for you, but I mean, as me, I mean, that's... Never seen that before. God allows Moses to live. But it doesn't really surprise us, does it? This is actually the sixth woman that has saved Moses' skin. There was Shifra and Puha, remember? These mighty um, labor and delivery nurses. Uh, there was Moses' mom, who by faith put him in that little basket in the sea of reeds. There was his older sister Miriam, who helped guide and even risk her neck to help make sure Moses was okay. There was Pharaoh's daughter, who came valiantly to uh, his aid. And then now we see his wife saving his life. The act of circumcision is critical because what this does is it both takes our thoughts backward and forward. We're going to start by looking backward to Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, where God commanded Abraham to circumcise every male on the eighth day as the sign of the covenant. Anyone who was not circumcised was cut off from God's people because they had, uh, in effect, broken the covenant with God. As an Israelite, Moses knew this. But for some reason not disclosed to us, he had not circumcised Gershom. Um, remember when Moses is arguing with God last chapter? Whining, just arguing all the time, and God... He does kindle his anger. Remember we heard that language? He kindles his anger against Moses. Well, this erupts it into flame. But notice the patience of God in his questioning. God, why are you letting this happen? I don't think I'm the right person. I don't, I don't. He doesn't have enough faith. But here, this is something altogether different. This has to do with the covenant that God had made toward his people. So... Um, the phrase that Zipporah uses, a bridegroom of blood, literally means a kinsman, a person I'm now related to by blood as the people of God. So it says um, a groomsman, perhaps, or a bridemaid, bridegroom, 
Uh, but here, that's, that's what's happening. So looking back, this act of bloodshed covers Gershom. It saves him. It saves Moses' life by extension. It identifies their family with the family of God. Because remember, he's about to go back and lead all of these Israelites to freedom. But before he leads them, he must become one of them truly. We saw Moses looking out, observing the suffering of his people, identifying with his people, and here he does it through the work of his wife. So this, this circumcision, this mark of the covenant, points back to God's covenant with us in Genesis 17. It also points forward to what we'll see unfold in the coming chapters with the Passover. So there, uh, the angel of death uh, sweeps over the land, and it is, do you remember what? The blood of a spotless lamb that marks the doorframe of the homes of God's people, protecting the firstborn of every household. Uh, the word used for how Zipporah touches Gershom here is the same word described smearing blood over the doorposts of the house to prevent the angel of death. So that's what it looks forward to. And of course, to fast forward a couple of thousand years ago, you're already thinking it. It points to the blood of the Lamb that was shed on behalf of sinners. The sign of God's new covenant, whereby through the shed blood of Christ, the wrath of God is turned away from us, fully satisfied in the work of Jesus upon the cross. This is the God who makes covenant. Strange text. Wonderful text. So that's what we see second. The final aspect of God is that our passage is calling us to see that he is the God who is worthy of worship. Now these, these scenes blow by like a tumbleweed. First, the Lord has sent the now 83-year-old Aaron to meet the now 80-year-old Midian. So these uh, aging men greet one another. Moses tells his big brother everything that God had spoken to him. The brothers probably take a quick nap before, I mean, they're eight in their 80s, right? <laughs> Y'all need naps, and you're younger than 80. Uh, they probably have a good nap and then head out to Egypt together. When they arrive, they meet with the elders of Israel. Aaron speaks all the words that God had given to Moses. Moses performs these signs which God had empowered him to accomplish. And the people believe. That's huge. Don't you remember all the paragraphs of Moses whining? They're not going to listen to me. I don't talk good. All of a sudden, Moses sounds like Ross Perot. I don't know where that came from, but it makes, makes sense if you think about it, actually. Moses spent paragraphs arguing with God and half a sentence telling us that these people believed. Just a quick lesson. How much time do we spend worrying and worrying and worrying over things that never happen? Earlier in verse 23, we heard the desire of God the Father that his children might serve him. As we reach the end of chapter 4, there's this family photo that we see of God the Father being worshipped by his children. 
I love where this chapter ends. The worship of God. There are three verbs that, uh, that connect all of this for me as we spend time here in the early pages of the Old Testament and we live right now in this moment of time. What do, what do we do with a text like this or more how might we respond to a passage like this? Well, I, I think these three verbs are little built-in applications for us today. Here they are. Believe, bow down, worship. First, believe. As we think about these people from long ago who believed the good news that Moses proclaimed, I cannot help but think about the need for belief in our lives and the strong likelihood that there is someone in this room this morning that has not yet believed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm inviting you right now to believe. Earlier, I read the first verse of Hosea 11, which is all good news about God's love for his children. Now I want to read verse 2, and I want to talk to those of you who are not yet in Christ. There, Hosea is still prophesying. He says, the more they were called, the more they went away. So God's calling them, and they are running from him. And then he says what they're doing in their running from God. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering, uh, and burning offerings to idols. So what he's saying is God's pursuing his people and they're pursuing the things of this world. We don't even get through the end of the book of Exodus before we see this play out. These people worshiping God in just a matter of chapters will be worshiping a golden calf. So like the children of Israel, we too have run from God. Like Moses, we have each broken his covenant by not keeping his laws and commands. But the good news is that God, out of love, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live in your place, to die in your place, whose blood was shed so that you could join the covenant people of God. That good news rings to the earth still today. So while it's still called today, I ask you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Look to Christ and be saved. And for each of us who have believed, let us continue to pursue knowing God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that every year of our lives he might grow bigger and bigger in our sight. Let us be a people who believe. Second, bow down. Now, um, this bowing down is an act of worship, but uniquely it's an act of submission and reverence to the holiness of God. And so as we think about the God of covenant, we can likely conclude that Moses' problem was primarily a heart problem, right? Just like we saw in chapter 3. That heart problem still exists. He had a hard time bowing down before the Lord in obedience. So, what area of our lives do we have a hard time bowing to the Lord in submission and obedience? We find here the importance of being a people of integrity who take care of the spiritual conditions of our hearts and our homes as of primary importance. So, husbands, fathers... There is unique application for you. 
Will you lead your family in the worship of God, walking in his ways and his commands? Not to earn God's approval, but because you've already been given it. In a Romans 12, one way to present our lives as husbands, as fathers, as a living sacrifice, to love and serve our wives, to lay down our life for them, as Ephesians 5.25 says, and to raise the next generation to love and serve and worship God. Bow down. And then third, worship. These people worship God. I think it's important to note that they're worshiping before they are delivered. They're still in bondage, remember? And here they are worshiping. When they hear the news, the good news that God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has heard their cry. He remembers his covenant. He's seen every moment of their suffering and he knows them. Their hearts explode with love and response. They worship him. They don't wait till they're free or till the clouds of suffering have parted. They sing in their suffering. They praise through their pain. They worship where they are. I love that the last word of this chapter is worship. So let that be the last thought on our minds as we conclude to be a people who live this life as an act of worship to the Lord, looking to the God who is worthy of our worship. When we opened the book of Exodus together for the first time, I I presented an overview of the storyline that we will see. In chapters 1 through 18, the God who redeems. Chapters 19 through 24, the God of covenant. Chapters 25 through 40, the God who is worthy of worship. In chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, it's a reverse picture of that. Moses beginning at Sinai, having this been instructed by God in what his covenant will look like and now results in him leading the people of God in worship in Egypt for the very first time, but it won't be the last time. So whether you read the story forward or backward, it points our attention Godward. For us to be a people who look to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the great I am, the God who has redeemed us, the one who has made covenant through us through the shedding of his own blood so that we could boldly approach the throne of God with confidence, the one who is worthy of our unceasing worship. May we be a people who look to Christ. And every year we grow, we find him bigger and bigger. This is the story of Exodus in reverse. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it instructs us, how it reveals to us who you are, your glory, your goodness, and calls us to live lives of submission and obedience and faith and worship. So now I pray that the seed of your word that was planted in us this morning would bear fruit, not from us white-knuckling our way to growth, but bear fruit because it's been planted in the fertile soil of hearts that love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.